I'm Todd McKay, and we've got our federal director, Franco Terzano, here, and he published a column in the Toronto Sun about inflation. Here's a quote. I'm going to quote right off the top of that, uh, of that newspaper column. Quote, the more dollars the government prints, the less your dollars buy. That's the inflation tax, and it's a key reason why life is getting more expensive. Hey, man, I've noticed that. My life is getting more expensive. I was just looking up the numbers. Ground beef is up 14% here in Saskatchewan. Why are my burgers more expensive? <laughs> yeah, and bacon. Bacon's up 20%. Oh, 20%. And I, That's I, important I, stuff, man. I mean, you could probably look at me. You could tell that I'm a guy who likes his bacon with his eggs, right? And, and but you know what? We, we are seeing these prices going up. Uh, so many Canadians are really feeling the pain here. Um, this is a complicated topic. It really is because there's many different factors that can increase the cost of living. I mean, we talk about carbon taxes, gas taxes all the time, right? We see these prices at the pump soaring and we remember, hey, you know, in many provinces, taxes make up more than a third of the price at the pumps. So that's one example, of course, regulations, um, of course, there could be some supply chain issues. There's a myriad of different factors that could cause prices to go up or prices to go down. But really, this constant march of higher prices stems from, from the fact that you can have the government print dollars out of thin air, but it can't print uh, cows out of thin air. It can't create farmland out of thin air. And it certainly cannot create homes out of thin air. Okay, so obviously what you're talking about here is inflation. It's driving up prices, decreasing the buying power of your money. Explain a little bit more about inflation. You, you got the big brain with the economics degree. <laughs> Give us a Cole's notes on inflation. Well, when we talk about printing more dollars, right? And, and you read that quote at the beginning where it's when the government prints more dollars, your dollars buy less. Um, so essentially what we're talking about is the Bank of Canada, the, the central bank here in Canada, and, and how it creates or prints new dollars is every time it buys a financial asset, such as a government of Canada bond. Now, it doesn't have this stack of cash just lying around to go out and buy those assets. How it buys those assets is essentially with the click of a keypad note, right? Just clicks the note, there it goes, it buys that asset with new dollars. And, and this... And this printing press has really been on overdrive during the pandemic. We've seen the central bank uh, by, cre increase its assets by $380 billion during this pandemic. And just to give you a little bit of context, that's significantly more growth in the bank's assets than what happened during the 0809 recession, the recession in the 90s, the recession in the 80s. You know, that's very similar to what happened during the entire six years of World War II. Okay. So essentially, there's a finite number of dollars out there, then the government creates more dollars, that lowers the value of all those other dollars that are out there. It's just kind of a supply and demand thing. Yeah. So let's start getting an idea of, of what kind of magnitude we're looking at. You noted that a little bit with historical examples. Let's put some numbers on it. How much has inflation gone up? Oh, well, I mean, over the last year, we've seen consumer prices uh, go up by 4.4%, uh, you know, in, in total. Uh, now, that's that sounds like a lot because it is a lot. Uh, it's the highest year-over-year -year increase in consumer prices uh, since February 2003, right? So that sounds pretty startling. It is very startling. But even that underscores the real issue, right? We, we know prices have gone up 4.4% over the last year, but if you look at the last two decades, 
prices have gone up by about 40%. Okay, so that's a lot. Uh, how much money has the government been printing? Well, you know, we, we've, we touched on that, right? But it's about $380 billion uh, is the growth in the Bank of Canada's assets. We, we talked about how that's a significantly higher percentage of growth in the bank's assets than the recent recessions, very similar to the entire six years of World War II. But let me tie in how the, the, the government's deficit spending really informs it really fuels this inflation tax. You know, we, we know that a lot of what politicians spend is funded by tax revenue, right? We're the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. We talk about that a lot. But when they borrow money, they can get money from different financial institutions. But also the Bank of Canada is purchasing a government of Canada bonds. So I went through the numbers. Uh, we looked at the 2020 deficit, massive deficit. It was about $335 billion. Well, the Bank of Canada bought up about $275 billion worth of Government of Canada bonds during that time. Now, let's look at the 2021 deficit. Um, the budget said it was going to be about $155 billion deficit, which is about $3 billion deficit per week. Two days, Todd, two days after the uh, 2021 budget was announced, the Bank of Canada said that they would be purchasing about $3 billion of Government of Canada bonds every single week. So it seems to be matching up pretty close there. And it sure does seem to me like that would be using the printing press to fund uh, Ottawa's deficits. Okay. So that's getting into some of the mechanisms. It really is different when government's borrowing money. When you or I borrow money, the people lending us that money have to actually have the money to lend. Mm -hmm. Usually they get a little bit sticky about how much they're giving you. After a while, they're going to be like, hey, how about you slow your roll? Uh, when it's the government and the Bank of Canada is printing that money, some of that restraint starts to become a little bit lacking. Let's start talking about the impact. What does this do to consumers? Oh, man. Well, <laughs> 4.4% increase in prices over a year. I mean, so our dollars just, just don't go as far, right? You mentioned supply and demand. Uh, when you increase the supply of anything, the value of it goes down. It's the same as when you increase the supply of dollars, the value or what you can purchase goes down. So 4.4% increase in prices over a year. As you mentioned off the top, ground beef is significantly higher than that. Bacon, 20%. Um, now there's many different influences, especially when we're talking about gas prices, but we're seeing prices go through the roof, which just means that, hey, our, our paychecks don't go as far. Right. Okay. That's the side when you're buying things. But what about those good folks who are savers, yeah. who listen to their grandpa and grandma's advice, put a few bucks away, particularly folks that are getting closer to retirement? What does inflation do to people who are saving? Oh, they're getting clobbered. They're, they're, they're getting clobbered, right? Especially if you're on, on fixed income. And, and especially, you know, you, 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 really hit, you really hit this point home, Todd. And, and you did everything right your whole life. You did what you were told. You put some money away for, for your golden years. And uh, that money just starts being worth less and less. And it's just so unfair for people, especially who are in retirement, who they can't just go back to work. It, definitely not in the career that they were in beforehand. So it's super unfair for them to see their savings being eaten away. But Todd, even someone like me, man, I, I, I'm trying to put away a good chunk of my, of my uh, income right it's for my retirement but now that cash is worth less and less if the if the government continues to print a ton of money okay where's this going in the future man 
Tell me, <laughs> yeah. where, where's this going? Well, hey, man, I can tell you right now, if, if I knew where those these prices were going in the future, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. I'd be in the Bahamas or something, man. Uh, yeah, so I, I don't I don't know where, where prices are going to go. I, I honestly don't think anyone really knows where prices are going to go. You would really need a crystal ball for that. Um, but look, I, I think don't expect much relief from these higher prices until the government takes its printing press out of overdrive, right? So we have to ha see that the government stop printing up all this new money. And really for that, I mean, the, the solution is for politicians to just stop borrowing so much money in the first place, right? Stop creating all these government of Canada bonds uh, for the central bank to buy up with, with printed new dollars, right? So what we need to see, what we've been talking about for so long really applies here too. And it's stop overspending stop with all of this borrowing yeah it's interesting it's easy for people to get bogged down in the complexities of oh, supply chain oh it's uh, international markets all of this kind of thing that's all real that's all part of it but there is the part you can control and how much we spend is under our control the government needs to get that under control Franco, thanks a lot. We'll keep the uh, we'll put the link to Franco's uh, uh, newspaper column right in the uh, show notes here Okay, we've got Chris Sims here. She is our BC director, and she is launching an online calculator. It's pretty fancy. It would show you how much it would cost you to pay a home equity tax when you sell your home. But here's the thing. The politicians, they swear. They promise you. They're looking in the eye, you in the eye and pleading with you. Please believe them. They would never, ever in 100 years impose a home equity tax. In fact, they talked about it in the last federal election. Here's a clip from the, uh, the leaders debate. Mr. Trudeau, Canadians are worried you're going to be taxing their primary home sale. Your uh, advisors have said it, untrue. your candidates have that said it. It's untrue. on page 14 of his policy book. He's introducing it a new tax right. on the it sale is. of homes. Leaders, leaders, there will be more opportunity class. to speak about these issues. Thank you. So Chris Sims, you heard the prime minister. He said, no, it's not true. We will never have a home equity tax. They're not going to do it. But Chris, you've got a whole online calculator so people can budget it out, see what kind of bill a home equity tax could hammer them with if they sell their home. So Chris, are you crying wolf here? The prime minister says he's not going to do it. No, not crying wolf. And the prime minister says lots of things. Um, I was born in the morning. I wasn't born this morning. So we know that the feds are deep in debt for more than a trillion dollars in debt. We know that they're sniffing around under the couch cushions looking for more of our money. And we actually have evidence that they're thinking about a home equity tax. CMHC is basically a crown corporation at the federal level that manages mortgages here in Canada. They're spending $250,000 to participate in a study that includes the idea of a home equity tax or taxing you on the value that is within your house. Lots of folks refer to that as a capital gains tax. So there's that. We know that they're studying that. And <laughs> during the election, the Liberal Party, led by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, proposed what they called an anti-flipping tax. Now, what they mean by that is if you buy a house, you move in, you live in it, you fix it up, and you sell it all within a 12-month period, within a calendar year, they're going to nail you with a flipping tax for that. They're not saying how much it's going to cost, but if you look at the details, that is a tax on the sale of your principal residence. And, you know, color me cynical, I don't believe that they're never going to move the goalposts on that. 
yeah, it's 12 months now, could be 24 months, there's different ways to look at these things. Uh, listen, I wish we were trusting people. I wish we could just take uh, politicians at their word, but uh, you and I, we're not paid to do that. Let's just be honest about it. There's enough smoke here to uh, keep the fire extinguisher close. Honestly, that's what your home equity tax calculator is all about. Okay. Let's brace ourselves here. What kind of a bill could we expect to see uh, when we start popping numbers into that home equity tax calculator? A big bill. Uh, it actually ranges from about $20,000 to $100,000. Not kidding. So and that's for, you know, really a typical house. If you take a look at it, say you're in the Toronto or Vancouver area, say you're a, you know, a family and you have an income of around $75,000. Say you bought your house years back for $500,000, sell it for about 1.2, you're going to be paying within those ranges, depending on what version of the tax you'd wind up paying. Okay. So especially if you're in the Vancouver or Toronto area, the idea of buying a house for a half a million bucks, a few, uh, you know, a few years ago, selling it for over a million, that can happen. Uh, housing prices have shot up in a lot of places. But I got to tell you, Simmer, whenever I see a price tag, it's like, well, I don't know, it could be between uh, $20,000 and $100,000. What? How come <laughs> there's such a big range? Take me through that. What? That's a huge bill, even at the low end, but twenty dollars to $100,000? Explain that. How does that work? Yeah, twenty dollars to $100,000, $20,000, you can get a brand new car. Like you can pay a good chunk of tuition for that. That's real dough. And that's on the low end of things. The reason why there's such a big range is because there's three different versions that we took a look at with this calculator. Okay. So we can walk through it if you want. So the first version is the American version. Uh, United States residents, when they sell their primary residence, the home that they own and live in, they actually do pay a capital gains tax on that sale. We got to point out, though, every year, they're typically allowed to write off their annual interest on their mortgages. So that really cuts into the bottom line when it comes to paying this tax. But going forward, if you take a look at it, Americans pay a capital gains tax on the sale of their home. They have a $500,000 deduction. So no matter what you sell your house for, whatever profit you're making off of it, take 500 grand off the top of that, okay? And then they apply that profit, whatever is left over, to that person's income tax rate, basically. And the average person, so between the ranges of like $80,000 and $475,000, which is most people, if you're a married couple, you're paying 15% tax on the profit that's left over from that house. That's the American version. So that is the lower end of the scale, okay? The second one that we took a look at it's basically a blend of what we pay here in Canada on secondary homes, actual capital gains, and the American version. And it's an idea that was thought up by a group called Generation Squeeze. They are a housing advocacy group based out of the University of British Columbia, obviously here in Vancouver. And what they're proposing is kind of a blend. So say you sell your primary residence here in Canada, they'd say the same thing. Take the American version, take $500,000 off of the top and then apply that to your income here in Canada. And that's a wide range, depending on your income bracket. That's why that range is right in the middle. The third one that we took a look at, if you take a look at the calculator, is just straight up capital gains that you already pay if you sell a second home. So right now here in Canada, say you manage to own more than one house, good for you. 
you sell that secondary home, one that is not your primary residence, you pay capital gains. And how you do that is you sell it, you subtract what you already paid for it. So you just take the profit, reduce it by 50%. What's left over is stuck onto your income tax bill. That's how these work. See, and this is frustrating because we can't just look at one proposal uh, and give you the calculator. We want it to be really clear. There's a range of proposals out there. You should look at the low end as well as the high end, see where it lands, because even at the low end for a lot of folks, particularly in those hot markets in Vancouver and Toronto, bottom line could be 20 grand, upper end could be 100. But listen, I live in Moose Jaw. Nobody's selling a house for a million dollars in Moose Jaw. Well, maybe, but that'd be a that'd be a real swanky pad if you're selling it for that much. Why should I be worried about this? Whole provinces here are probably shrugging, saying, "Why am I worried about this? Why should uh, folks like me care?" Well, you should care because if you go plunk your numbers into that calculator, depending on which version you're looking at. Depending on what you bought your house for and what you sold your house for and what your family income is, you could still be paying around $30,000. So you don't have to be trying to tough it out and, you know, sell off a house in Vancouver or Toronto and really get hit in the face with like a $100,000 bill. Even in Moose Jaw, you could be hit by this depending on what version you're looking at. And as always with these, ta- with these taxes and bad ideas, it won't stay <laughs> in one region. And they won't keep these goalposts where they are. Governments are famous for crying broke, saying they need money and saying they're just going to start with this little itty bitty tax and then blowing it up. So yeah, again, we can't trust them to leave the goalposts where they are. So yeah, right now it could still affect you in Moose Jaw. And two, it probably wouldn't take them very long to really start affecting you in Moose Jaw if we let them do this. Yeah, that's the thing. The One of the simplest ways for them to do that would be to just get rid of the uh, uh, primary residence exemption. At that point, almost everybody starts to get hit with a tax. We, were, we want to be careful. We've showed a number of different versions, but almost none of them are good news and some are really bad news. Okay, we're going to have a link to the calculator in the show notes. Check it out. Try it out. Let us know if you think there's problems with it. If you have any questions about it, we really, really want feedback on this. But we think it's really important for people to know if people are looking at a policy, they should be really upfront about what the price tag is. This gives you some idea of what those price tags might look like. Simmer, thank you so much for working on this for us. Thank you. All right, we've got Jay Goldberg here. Here's, he's our guy in Ontario. And it's interesting. We just got a new cabinet after the election. Pablo Rodriguez is the new Minister of Heritage. I don't think Minister Rodriguez even figured out where his desk was before Jay was publishing advice for him right in the National Post. He's right there ready. I'm going to read a quote from that National Post column. And here it is. Rarely in the history of Confederation have so many from so many points on the political spectrum been so unified in opposition to one specific policy. Before the last election, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government's proposed internet regulations provoked opposition from journalists, academics, civil liberties groups, women's advocacy groups, organizations, libertarians, privacy experts, think tanks, concerned citizens, and scores of others. I just about ran out of breath just reading the list. Yeah. All right, Jay, 
you and I have made careers out of uh, getting mad at government. This is kind of what we do every day when we wake up. But librarians? They don't really have a reputation for uh, losing their cool. Are you serious about this? Are librarians really getting into this particular fight? Yeah, the librarians are riled up. Uh, the librarians know that um, this legislation is a real threat to free speech in Canada. They've spoken up about it, um, as have people, as you noted, from so many different groups. And there's a lot of groups, uh, including LEAF, which is generally an organization that is in the Trudeau Liberals corner, that have come up very strongly against this. And you're seeing, as you said, we've made a bit of a career out of uh, getting mad at government, but you're seeing librarians, who of course you never expect to get uh, angry at anybody uh, other than those who still owe their uh, overdue books, but uh, they're riled up. So are people who are, you know, more usually friendly to this liberal government. So I think that they really poked the eye of a lot of people all across the country. And I think Mr. Rodriguez has an opportunity here to pull back a little bit. Um, you know, obviously they campaigned during the election uh, wanting to keep certain things, but there are really a lot of important changes that can be made at the margins that Pablo Rodriguez should look at. Yeah, it's interesting. I was reading what the librarians were writing about this. I'm going to fire in a quote on that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Canadian Association of Research Libraries is concerned the proposed approach may result in significant over removal of content. It's interesting reading it. They were looking at it you really could have automated uh, systems just pulling down content, even though it's not offensive, maybe it's even going after or criticizing offensive content, but it's just getting pulled down on a broad brush. But that means we need to take a step back here, Jay. Not everybody's a nerd uh, like us and reading this kind of stuff. We're really talking about Bill C-10 here, although it'll probably get a new number uh, if and when it's reintroduced. But for the time being, Bill C-10, what is it? What does it do? So Bill C-10 was originally designed, according to the Liberal government, essentially to promote Canadian content online. Uh, they wanted to have organizations like Netflix, uh, Amazon Prime, show a certain amount of Canadian content and then get some CanCon revenue for uh, those industries, of course. Um, so, you know, that on its face was a goal, and that's something that the European Union has done, so there's a model there that the government could have followed, but they decided to also go after what's called user-generated content, and that's the kind of things that if you or I post a video on YouTube, there would then be regulations from the government about what percentage of videos that are showing up on YouTube channels that need to have Canadian content, and so essentially, uh, the government's messing with your news feeds, whether it's on YouTube or a lot of other different social media, uh, such as Twitter or Facebook. So if you're starting to mess up our feeds, um, you know, that's a huge overreach in terms of civil liberties. And it, and it really opens the door to the possibility that the government could reorder content, not necessarily for just CanCon reasons, but also stuff that's critical of the government. And so that's why a lot of people are really scared about uh, the proposals here. And as I said, there's an approach in Europe that they focus on Europe or European Union-based content. There is a quota there, but it does not go after user-generated content at all. And Professor Michael Geist, who, of course, we know very well, law professor at the University of Ottawa, he said there is no other country in the world that tries to censor uh, through broadcast regulations like the Trudeau government was trying to do. 
Yeah, and it's interesting. We could really have a good debate about CanCon and whether you should be funneling money to uh, to some of these uh, artists or so-called artists. That's a good debate. We should have that debate. I think, uh, you know what, I'm going to tip the scale a little bit and say there's a lot of ways to waste money doing that, yeah. but that is a different debate. When you get into saying which content should be seen by who, and you're getting government's fingers into that, uh, that's not a good thing. We shouldn't be worried about whether the government's going to be okay with it before we hit post on our Facebook or, or, uh, or YouTube. Okay, so listen, that's where the, uh, the situation uh, uh, was at the moment, but then all of a sudden, everything kind of came to a screeching halt for this uh, super necessary election uh, that everybody seemed to almost forget about the moment it was over. What happened uh, to Bill C-10 in terms of uh, process? Well, what happens is, uh, you know, after every election, the parliament's dissolved, and so all the legislation dies, and so... What the Liberals are going to have to do now is reintroduce all of the legislation. And what that means is there's an opportunity now. Minister Rodriguez will be tasked with introducing the new legislation with these CanCon rules. The Liberals have signaled they want to go forward with it. But he now has an opportunity. And of course, as you said, this super necessary election where uh, it's going to end up being probably over two months between the election and when Parliament comes back. So uh, not exactly a real sense of urgency there. But Minister Rodriguez has a chance to rework the legislation a little bit. As we said, there are ways at the margins, you know, if you're still wanting to go after Canadian content, but making sure you don't go after user generated content like our YouTube videos. So there's definitely some ways at the margins that the Liberals can make some meaningful changes. Uh, if they're still determined to go forward with this CanCon, as you said, let's have a debate about Canadian content and, and regulation but we shouldn't be having a debate about whether or not the government can choose what we see on our news feeds and on YouTube. And so it presents a real opportunity here. The legislation has to be reintroduced anyway. So now is the time to craft it a little bit differently. Okay, uh, but you're kind of a know-it-all. You're telling the, uh, the minister uh, how to do his business. Uh, that's what we pay you to do. So let's do it. What, what advice do you have for the minister? What should Minister Rodriguez be doing here? Well, look, he's got to hit the pause button. Um, there was a consultation process. So in tandem with Bill C-10, the government was also looking at a new online harms um, proposal and they had the proposal come out right before the election. Uh, they had a consultation period, um, but the consultation happened during the election. It was so rushed that, for example, Facebook, which is going to be face significant regulation through these uh, both pieces of legislation, Facebook didn't even submit anything to the process because it was so rushed. And of course, the government wasn't able to pay a lot of attention because they were busy out running for re-election. And with that online harms proposals, there's some very dangerous stuff in there. They're talking about requiring social media companies to take things down potentially within 24 hours of something being flagged. And that's, as you're saying, that it could create a culture of takedown where companies like Facebook or Twitter could face millions of dollars of fines they don't take something down in 24 hours. And so it's going to err on a culture of takedown because, you know, these companies are not going to want to leave themselves open to being fined millions and millions of dollars. So there's a lot of very real problems here um, that could create major headaches and really threaten freedom of speech. So Bill C-10 needs to be reworked to get that user-generated content element out of there. 
I think the government needs to go back to the drawing board in definitely giving more than 24 hours and threatening millions of dollars of fines before you start talking about, uh, you know, a culture of takedown for anything that's online and anything that someone just alleges could be uh, hateful content. So the government has really rushed this. They've just won re-election. Um, you know, obviously this legislation wasn't so urgent that it had to go within a matter of weeks because they called the election and now they haven't even come back to Parliament Hill for weeks and weeks after the election. So there's no excuse for Minister Rodriguez to turn around and say, we've got to jam this through right when we get back to Parliament because we've had weeks and months of delay anyway and no action. And so they really need to sit down, have a genuine consultation process where you talk to all of the stakeholders. I mean, there's no way you should be regulating social media companies and not have Facebook. Facebook, which is one of the largest social media companies involved in the conversation. We've heard concerns from so many different groups all across civil society. And so this is a time for hitting the pause button, have a meaningful consultation, maybe wait a few months, do the process right, and then you know come up with a new proposal. But in the EU, uh, it took them years to come up with their legislation that uh, ultimately had those European Union content rules. And that was years of negotiation and listening to parties from all over the place. And so that's exactly what the Trudeau government should do. And so it's definitely time to hit the pause button. Yeah, it's so interesting that you're referencing uh, uh, Professor Michael Geist uh, from the University of Ottawa. We had a chance to chat with him a little bit. Almost makes me want to go back to university and take some classes because uh, guys like that, uh, wow, you can get smarter faster. Oh, he yeah. pointed out that first of all, well, first of all, the government needs to be listening to folks like him and taking their time to listen because this guy understands it uh, better than just about anybody else. But he was pointing out that not only did groups like Facebook not even make a proposal, they should be on the record. They should have to publicly say what they think is good and bad so that we can all criticize it, agree with it, disagree with it, or whatever, have a conversation about it. He pointed out that in the so-called consultation, a lot of the presentations from other major players were never made public. So it's backroom stuff about freedom of speech. That's not how this works. We have to have an open and fulsome debate especially when issues of censorship and free speech come up. Okay, let's get your crystal ball out, though. Where do you see this going? What's going to happen next? Well, look, I think the legislation is definitely going to be reintroduced in some form. Uh, Minister Rodriguez has said that uh, he intends to do so, and the Trudeau Liberals definitely indicated during the election that they want to do that. But I think that there is an opportunity, as I said, to deal with some of the really, really controversial elements at the margins, I, I don't think it's too much to ask the Liberal government to think about this a little bit before they pass it, listen to experts. I mean, people like Professor Michael Geist are not inherently upset with the government all the time on every subject. We're often very critical of the government, but as we said off the top, there's a lot of groups that usually want to work with the government, cooperate with the government, try to get the best policy possible on the books. And so I think it's fair to say that if the Liberals want to move forward with it, they should do a proper consultation. And then you can introduce legislation and move forward, um, hopefully taking out the worst elements, the poison pills. But um, you know, with just so many groups all across society so concerned, I think that should be a red flag for the Liberal government. There's a lot of parties, actors out there who are normally supportive of the Liberals that are very, very worried about this. And at the very least, I think the Liberals need to show in another minority parliament, not a majority, 
that they're at least willing to listen to Canadians. I like you. I, I like your optimism there that uh, that they need to listen, uh, especially when both friends and critics have concerns. Yes. I will say, though, the first time this stuff came through, nobody expected it. I think nobody really understood it. There was a few people like Professor nope. Geis and others who saw what was there and raised the alarm. There's no sleeping dogs now, though. It, nope. Even at the Taxpayers Federation, it took us a little while to figure out what was happening. Everybody's awake now. Everybody's looking at it. Everybody's got out the uh, magnifying glass to look for the uh, small print. I think at, uh, at minimum, going forward, this is going to be a much louder, much more fulsome debate. Uh, the government better brace itself because the rest of us are ready. Jay, thank you so much for jumping on this. You've been all over this from the start. We've got uh, a link to your uh, newspaper column in the National Post. We'll keep that link right in our show notes so people can check it out. And as I say, everybody should stay tuned. I'm pretty sure there's going to be more on this uh, in, the, in the coming months. Absolutely. With the minority government, there's bound to be a, be a fight. And I think we're, we're, we're going to be ready. All right. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, Todd. Hi, I'm Scott Henning, president of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. If you've got another minute, I'd like to ask you to think about the one person you know that would really enjoy listening to this podcast. Do us a favor and do them a favor and send them a quick note to let them know about it. At the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we believe there is power in numbers. That's why we've worked so hard to build an army of taxpayers who are ready to push back. And we did it because people like you shared our work with that one person that they knew would really appreciate taking part. Thanks for listening, and thanks for doing your part to make Canada a better place.